thanks very much to you and Sundaram talks. Um, I think I should also thank Swarajya and uh, its editors for uh, publishing this article, which I um, suppose was quite effective because that occasion gave this invitation to me as well. Um, but uh, this subject that I have been writing on this subject since many years. and uh, many have been published before but um, they were not much noted and um, i think uh, these kind of things you know it takes time for a certain idea to just get more um, you know just to become more widespread and um, as you know everybody knows this kind of um, articles were not there was no scope to do that before the turn of the century especially only after the internet came to be that you know writers like me had any chance of publishing things and uh, the first of these was you know i still remember the first of my articles on this topic was why this bias against hinduism and it was um, published in two parts in a news portal run i mean it was operated by indians abroad i think uh, there were in the states and it was called the india course and uh, there were compiling news items relevant for india and the hindus at that time and uh, along with that they were publishing you know other writers independent writers as well and so i sent these to articles and after that you know some you know then slowly people were asking me about me and uh, then i started writing for sandhya jain's open complete opinion forum called um vijaywani and most of my articles have been published in that and she was instrumental in encouraging me to write more and more and uh, then you know then i of course i had been to i was invited to by to houston texas and uh, deliver the sri uh, sitaram goel lecture in that was in 2012 and that was tahi jesus christ in the light of sanatana dharma and uh, there was a serious uh, comparison of christianity and hindu dharma especially how christianity can be moved can be viewed uh, from the hindu hindu viewpoint and of course um, you, you know that before this um, reawakening of uh, this pagan india i had also published this Hindu polities versus global monotheism. That was in India Facts, and that was also in three parts. Um, and it had a very similar topic. I mean, it was the same, almost the same, similar subject. Um, but uh, I think uh, this, when I thought of not talking about you know what I have written, but uh, in general, how I came to you know to this comparative religion as a topic. and how it is viewed from the academic you know objectively by academics and um, how i mean i will not go into the details of all that because i don't think it is very relevant uh, here um but at the same time um, it, it would be good for listeners to know how it is viewed in other places but because everyone personally will have a, a kind of encounter with other religions that is where comparative religion comes to be you know in real life that was the same with me as well because you know as a child 
I, I think I was a little more religious than the usual people. <laughs> because I remember when I was initiated into the church, when I was just past five, and, uh, you know, they started giving me all these uh, things about the Christian love, peace, and how Jesus comes to save us and all that. And uh, we lived in a Christian joint family, actually. My father's brother, their, their families, my grandmother, my aunties. And so uh, it was, uh, but at the same time, we, we, except for my grandmother, nobody was very fervent about religion. She was the one, you know, who organized all these prayers and all that kind of stuff. At, at uh, sunset, she always lit the lamp and we all had to do this and we had to start our prayers. And our neighbors, I could hear, you know, they used to say they were mostly Hindus all around and they say, Rama, Rama, Fahima, and to you always say about Jesus Christ and how we are sinners and all that. So uh, this is part and parcel of the Christian life, you know, because all their doctrines, everything was so this, that was a big difference for me. And I also remember there were some Jews living nearby because I was born and brought up in the Catholic capital of India, which is Cochin. It is not Goa, by the way. It is Cochin and Kerala, which is the Catholic and Christian capital of India, even now. Because that is where, you know, the most of the nuns and priests come from. They are at the forefront of all evangelization in India. They are the leaders, actually. I mean, not only for Catholic Catholics, but in all other uh, churches and, uh, you know, all these uh, Pentecostals and so on. So um, then I just I remember that uh, I was taken to my Jewish neighbors and they were actually going back going to Israel. It was the, in the 60s. I think it was in the mid 60s and they were going and they came and they made goodbye, you know, with goodbye and said we are going and uh, they were in tears actually. And uh, then when we went to their house, I was not eating anything and my when we came back, my auntie was asking, why you didn't have any, even anything from there? And I was saying, oh, they're Jews, you know, they treated Jesus. I still remember that. <laughs> and uh, my uh, auntie was very angry with me. He said, oh, they are Jews, but we are Christians, and this is not, nothing like that. You know, they are, they, are not, they are not the guys who really killed Jesus, and so on. And then I remember another instance, you know, when we used to discuss in my, with my siblings, I had three sisters, I have three sisters and one brother. And, uh, you know, my two sisters were older to me and they were the leader in leading things, you know. So we were saying, oh, after life, oh, after death, what will happen? And, uh, you know, then we had this purgatory waiting for us, or hell, or heaven, and so on, and we were all frightened, you know. And uh, my elder sister was saying, you know, it, uh, there, there are other viewpoints on this, you know, because the Hindus think that, you know, the Atman after death who will merge with the Paramatman, and so on, and uh, that interested me. And I thought, okay, this is a different viewpoint, and uh, worth looking at, but I was just hardly 10 years old. Then I went to a boarding school, which is also was a Christian Catholic school. And there I came firsthand, you know, with this church and uh, the people who were running it. And 
that somehow just um, what extinguished all, all my devotion. And uh, <laughs> if I had gone to a government school, probably I would have turned up differently. So this was really, I still remember one instance, you know, when one boy, one of my classmates, he, he was shouting to one of these uh, people who were running the mess, some women, and he used some very bad words. And there was this nun who came and said, you know, oh, you shouldn't do that. You are a Christian. And just because you are a Christian, you shouldn't be doing that. So some of my Hindu friends were very angry at hearing that. And, you know, then they had, I still remember they were having a scratch between them, the nuns and uh, these boys. And uh, that somehow... After school, I just left the church. I was just 15 years old, but I just decided I will not have anything to do with the church. So that was, uh, you know, then I started looking at other things. And fortunately, I also had occasion after my MA in English. And uh, I joined, uh, I had a training in journalism for some time. But somehow I was, I really, I was suffering from existential problems because I was an atheist and uh, I had no direction, no motivation. But fortunately, I, at that time, I met one journalist who himself was in a trouble, but I didn't know at that time. And because he himself was going through a bad, um, you know, a bad time. And because he was, um, you know, he was with the Reuters, but then later he picked up, you know, he became an editor of uh, one traditionalist Catholic magazine, a journal called The Insight, which was sponsored by his friends, I mean, by his brother. One of his brother was a priest in the U.S., a Catholic priest, and he was funding it because he became a traditionalist. And uh, for those who are not informed, traditionalist Catholics were those who did not like the second reformation which happened in Vatican. That was in 1962 that they completed that. So they remained, uh, you know, with the doctrines and the rituals of the previous church. I mean, that was the, before the 1962. So this church is called the Traditionalist Catholics, and uh, it was uh, one cardinal called uh, Marcel Lefebvre who, uh, you know, led this movement. And there were, of course, uh, people in India, in Cochin as well, who were traditional Catholics. And uh, if you know this, uh, <clears throat> Mel Gibson, the famous actor, he, he belongs to that church. And his father was also belonged to the Hutton Gibson was his name, and he has written a, a book about uh, the Pope who brought the Reformation, and it was called the Man of Sin. That, how, that is how he addressed the Pope who made these, because, you know, he, the, the predominant, I mean, the main thing about this uh, Reformation was that, you know, they, the uh, redemption was opened to all the others as well not only to Catholics, but to all other religions, at least symbolically. And uh, that is when they turned, they used to conduct the bars, you know, turning turning the backside to the audience, but they changed that, they began to face the audience, and then that is how, after the Reformation, that was happened. So, um, these 
journalist was also belonged to that but at a certain point he had uh, you know he came to know that he, he had a he was in a big dilemma because he was um he was researching krishna because uh, you know the traditional catholic some of them especially the his his sponsors they wanted him to um, research krishna and uh, say that you know krishna came after jesus because in their life they had some similarities and so that the hindus were you know plagiarists who uh, plagiarized jesus christ and that is how krishna came to but um, his name was leo panakalis novo and uh, panakal found that you know this was not true that krishna was much older and that he stopped his everything he just stopped what he was doing so this was also a turning point in my life and uh, you know then i started looking and started reading vivekananda and abhishekananda uh, and so on so and the one thing that i made a marking i mean a very marked um, a very distinctive um, impression on me was um, you know the emphasis on rationality and reason and uh, so uh, i added this dimension of um, of rationality to religion as well you know that it is not separate it cannot be separate you cannot see this because uh, there were there, there are people you know even before that that uh, you know especially in comparative uh, religious studies for example academically as well people were more or less looking at these features um, you know either they wanted to establish the superiority of a certain religion or they just wanted to show you know if they just say that these are these features religion is a spirituality is a phenomenon you know so you cannot and it cannot be separated from its context cultural context and so on i mean this was the um, thing which happens and uh, you know that is uh, what is comparative religion is is all about um especially because in in today's in wikipedia and uh, in encyclopedia.com if one were to look at all these you would find that you know these uh, you would see that you know the first people who started this comparative studies al-biruni and uh, ibn hashim hashim and so on because they were criticizing christianity at that time then they somebody was calling max muller as the father of comparative religion then there were some anthropologists who, who were you know who uh, documented many um, many religions which are we might you may call them primitive from today's um, you know side guys uh, but uh, these were these were the comparative religion that was going on <clears throat> and uh, of course uh, there was um, you know as a one more uh, i mean it became a little more systematic one should say with the mulsiyaid of the university of chicago who propounded the new humanism and then came criticism of all that later on by one jonathan smith 
uh, in his um, uh, critical essay called The History of Religions, and this was in 1971, and this challenged the methodology and uh, the control of what passed as comparison. And, uh, you know, there were several um, points that uh, he and uh, many others as well were found, you know, disputed for, because this is not the right way to do comparative religion, because that was always there was because nobody knew how to evaluate religion and how to compare religion and uh, anybody who did that had some vested interest to do that so this was going on you know and uh, for example you know there some people said it is very uh, this comparativism is very theological since because it originates in divine revelation so um, for a naturalistic, natural religionist, for example, you know, this doesn't make sense because how can somebody's revelation apply to my own life because I have a different worldview and so on. And then there was this argument that the comparative religion is not objective enough, that it is only descriptive. There is no explanation about, you know, giving you just to give uh, some attributes of one religion and then you say, this is like this and this is like that. And then, um, you know, slowly there were other changes as well, you know, for example, by Barbara Holberg, for example, who wrote this Veda and Torah. She found a lot of similarities between, between the Hindus and the Jews, how they conducted themselves in their religious life, for example. Even these, um, you know, these sacred thread that they used, the Jews also used a certain um, made of leather and so on. I mean, there are many similarities as well. But at the same time, uh, you know, this is um, something. Uh, there are so it was. It became like that. You just showcase these things, you know, these attributes, and say that this is comparative religion. That was what was going on. And in 1998, in what became or what was called a new trend in comparative religion was Wendy Doniger's book, The Implied Spider. It came in 1998, and which was supposed to give a bottom-up rather than a top-down approach. What is meant by that is that, you know, you don't compare the doctrines or lofty theological aspects or even gods or in beliefs in God, but what these religions and uh, religious practices uh, were in, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, from a pan-human factors, uh, such as gendered sexuality, body, desire and procreation, as well as shared human problems. So from this and of course, um, by doing this, uh, actually, Doniger purported to showcase cultural differences in various religions when tackling the self-same human problems, because human, the human species have the same problems. So religion should satisfy their problems and not just, you know, you bring in a god and, you know, you can't just do that. So in that way, Wendy Donegia comes very close to the truth, but yet remain far, at least. I might, I, I, I may say that if she comes to the doorstep of humanity, that's the first time, you know, in all these um, uh, comparative religion, that, is, that humanity is a bigger factor when it comes to religion. So, um, 
that it is is uh, you know that is uh, where the the point is that uh, this whatever religion it is whatever it is a comparative religion or not it has to do with humans and the human problems and it should satisfy the human sentiment for religion so uh, what i found that i mean donegas thesis for example you know they they stay they stagnate because their thought process they examine only the stark of physical things it is almost as if a marxist is comparing the religions here but whatever is concerning the body your your desires your very bodily desires i mean i mean that has to satisfy us and they they even when they analyze when they their their skills are all they cannot rise beyond the material and gross physical for example in yogic terms you can say that you know these type of scholars they cannot rise beyond the muladhara chakra i mean these chakras about that they they are completely ignorant of that or they rather don't want to examine that which means that uh, it, it, it is like the marxists you know who are not concerned about anything else except consumerism your 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 stomach your body your desires there is nothing more than that and i think this is applicable to uh, all western scholars i mean not all of course in general terms when they tackle indian knowledge systems because they always their level of thinking is at the body level they cannot rise beyond that when they especially when they when they examine indian knowledge systems and uh, this uh, reminds me of uh, you know one of my friends he is an american and he is a he is a very popular blogger i can call the less visible les visible and he once told me a story probably heard it from somewhere maybe an indian and um, it is about a man who is searching for the ultimate reality and then he comes to a wise man and he says okay you go to this building there is a building there and you go and look and you can find the ultimate reality there so he goes there and finds that it is a seven story building and uh, he enters the first the ground floor and he finds that it in this the ground floor is all about you know your body your you know, it's all about drink sex and drugs and all that you know and this guy he he doesn't go up anymore he doesn't want to go up he wants to stay in the first floor so he cannot he doesn't want to explore the other things because he is satisfied with it he he thinks that there is no more to be learned or no more to be enjoyed or no nothing more to be known so this is the case with the communism i mean i mean particularly marxism as well as christianity and islam because in their core doctrines they reduce the human condition that is the entire human species to mere bogies you know just consumers there is nothing beyond that because even when i used to think about you know the afterlife that when you you know the last judgment and all that you know they they still they they what do they get in 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 paradise is the same old the human sentiments that you get with the body without a body they cannot think of a heaven because a heaven is a place of pleasure 
pleasure in the sense, you know, the physical pleasure. So this, these, even the, 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 I mean, very, very learned scholars, they cannot get beyond that when they come to terms with the Indian knowledge systems. So what I meant to say was this, their evolution as a species itself has stagnated because of that, because no vision beyond their body sensations. This, um, of course, when it comes to comparative religion, there is, was also a very, um, there was another trend that was also popular in the last um, decade of the last century, and it was, it was called the interfaith dialogue. Actually, there is, um, actually it is credited to one Presbyterian minister from Canada called Wilfred Cantwell Smith. But actually, it were the Catholics who really initiated it after the Second Vatican Council, because uh, the evangelization before the Reformation was that, you know, we held this exclusive uh, redemption. So uh, that was the point. But then later, you know, because um, what you call the zeitgeist, you know, the people, the, that is the spirit of the times that can change people because you achieve without anything a certain time that the spirit of the time can bring in a lot of a certain sensitivity, certain awareness that you did not have in a previous age. So just like that, it, they found it, it is difficult to, you know, just go and, um, and convert people, especially when they when they are educated and so on. So they devised this interface dialogue and um, and uh, many of these, and uh, one person who comes to my mind is Reverend Father Francis Xavier Clooney. He was um, a professor in Harvard, the School of Divinity, actually, and uh, he was very active at the time. And uh, you know, many Hindus fell for his tricks. He used to come to Chennai very frequently, and he's written books about, you know, comparative religious books about uh, Mariam and, and Mary, and uh, you know how. The devotion to Mariam and by the Tamils, and he he uh, compares it to these sentiments with uh, Mary, and uh, slowly, slowly, you know, then comes the Jesus, and you know, yeah, after the dialogue, the dialogue becomes a monologue, and uh, finally, this is what uh, they were putting inside. But uh, somehow, uh, this has also disappeared because uh, Hindus have also come to know what. This uh, means, and because they are also educated now, people come to know there is more dissemination of um, knowledge and information. So many people have become aware of this, especially after the advent of the internet. So the, now the question is, you know, why is comparative religion important? It is. Of course, not for aesthetic reasons. You know that you compare Western classical music with the Indian or any other Eastern classical systems. Comparative religion is important because religion is important. And uh, why is religion important? It is because it is our religion that provides us a worldview on which our entire life on earth depends. It is this worldview that provides the knowledge about our existence, our life, our death. 
the religion that provides you with the true worldview is the true religion. Because the true worldview makes our individual lives meaningful, enriches the society, and gives the human species sanity. Your innate beliefs corroborate and confirm perceived phenomena. Your experiences tally with your beliefs and do not contradict them. If, on the contrary, if your religion is faulty and erroneous, your experiences will certainly contradict your worldview. But you will, at some point, you expect something from your action and you get the opposite and you have panic. That is a natural human thing. You know, you go and you have put something in, in a box and you go and uh, open the box to take it and you find a snake, you are really in a panic. So this, it is like that, you know, when your experience contradicts, you will lose your sanity. Our personal lives, as well as the life of society, and by extension, our polity will suffer. The whole humanity will suffer. If there is so much man-made conflicts and suffering in this world, it is because of these religions, these error-prone religions like Christianity, Islam, and and also communism, which is also a religion without the God. The evolutionary process of our species has come to a halt because of the dominance of these three ideologies. For example, I was just looking uh, in, in, in the, on, on Google, you know, about, you know, the religion, and uh, then there was a question, what is the best religion? And they have given, uh, you know, this, um, uh, the number of people, you know, in Christianity, it is the highest, and the second, it comes uh, Islam. So it is by the number of adherents to a certain uh, religion, that, that, is the, that is the popular sentiment of the popular information. Anybody who looks in Google, oh, which is the best religion, I want to know, and you come, oh, the most number of people is this. And in another two or three decades, it will be the Islam that will be the best religion. So, and how these religions came to achieve this status, it is through violence, it is through aggression, so these things, it is actually, you know, who decides which is the best religion? It is the power. I mean, it is the power, the, the physical power that determines your spiritual, um, you know, <laughs> rating, for example. So this, by doctrine, these Abrahamic strains redirect the human spirit to the gross body. They will not allow the human spirit to rise from the Muladhara Chakra. It is, it, it is as long as they are there, it will never allow. Look at any area of conflict in the world, be it Africa or anywhere else. But the root cause are these religions. And why? Because they are not true. They are not true religions because they have nothing to do with the reality. Therefore, when we compare religions, so we need to compare a religion not with other religions, but with the benchmarks of reality. They should stand the test of scientific principles. It's, for example, I mean, that, that is where Sanatana Dharma and the Hindu philosophical doctrines gain significance. 
This is how Sanatana Dharma becomes the benchmark of religion for the human species. Now, one may ask, what is the main trait of our species? What is this species? What is so common? You know, that it, everything, that, that, uh, that uh, everything should be applicable to the species. When you say species can be different, one person may not need all these. So, uh, the chief characteristic of our species is the reflection, you know, the ability, the thinking process. That is, when we use this, um, you know, our Indian, Indian language and we say we are all Manushya. That is the progeny of Manu, which means this progeny of the one who thinks. That is our species. It is not because you walk on two legs. It is because you think. It is by this principle that one must assess each religion and that is the only valid approach to comparative religion. Thank you friends uh, for your patience and time. That is all. As you mentioned that there was this uh you know, this bogey that pushed forward that Sri Krishna came after Jesus because a lot of uh, similar happenings happened in their life. Polonius of Tiana, contemporary of, uh, of Jesus Christ, and supposedly his whole uh, life and biography was uh, uh, made into a person called Jesus, where actually it was a Polonius of Tiana who was the actual uh, pagan Jesus that they say. That, at that time, there was not just one Jesus, there were many Jesus like that, because uh, it was at that time, it was uh, very popular for people, you know, at every corner you find a founder prophet who was, you know, uh, they're trying to prophesy, this, um, um, these kind of prophets at every corner, you know, and uh, so uh, I don't think, uh, of course, Apollonius was one of them, but there were really to be others who became a model for Jesus. There is no doubt about that. Whether there was a, um, you know, whether this, this what we call Jesus, son of Mary existed or not, it is, um, you know, you can never say. There is no proper proof for that. But of course, there were many Jesus at that time. There is no doubt and Apollonius is one of them. One of the main points in your article point about the takeover of the temples by the state, which is a very big reason for uh, the constant deterioration of the uh, education system and the whole handling of the temples. So what are your views on that? I know of uh, what really happened in Kerala, for example. That was the time when, you know, the travel call especially because it was the richest state in Kerala at that time. And uh, there was um, a, a, one resident, one British resident, uh, he came here. And he was instrumental in, because he found that most of the land, the public land, the most, what you call public land was owned by the temples. Because uh, here in Kerala, it was, a, it, we had a very peculiar history because it were the, Brahmins who owned, I mean, it was the temples who owned everything because the Brahmins were in power. Because here there were the Brahmins and the Shudras. It was not like in other in northern parts of India that happened here. So the Brahmins ruled for a long, long time. 
and it was only in recent times, you know, that they lost power. And the first things the new kings did was to get these, even Martanda Varma, the, the founder of the Charanko, he just, um, it was the first places he conquered were the temples because that they were the powerhouses. This, this was throughout Kerala, it was like that. Because the Brahmins, that is how the Brahmins lost power, because they lost power of the temples. So this suited the both, I think, to a certain degree, the king, as well as the British president, because he was making, facilitating, you know, that um, everything, uh, so that, you know, the land went to the, went to the churches. For example, the CMS, the Christian Missionary Society of the English, you know, these British Protestants, they were here and they were, they sort of uh, took over many, much of these temple lands were converted into Christian uh, schools or um, churches and for all other purposes. So that was the beginning. So it started actually quite a long time ago. And slowly, slowly, this became a kind of, um, uh, you know, a precedence by which even later when, um, you know, it became independent also, you know, they tried to do that because then Marxism had become an established ideology here, especially they prevailed upon, you know, the so-called, um, you know, subaltern classes and all that, these uh, untouchables and the low caste, what they were called. And that actually it is a very, very interesting if one looks at it from a different way because it was as if, because the whole, uh, you know, for the temple entry movement and all that, actually these people did not want to enter the temples because that would imply that they did not have a, a, their own belief systems. <laughs> they had their own, everybody. I mean, these the temple worship was actually confined to a certain few people. And uh, the others, every every Jati had their own culture. They had their, they, they are very, very rich. You can still see in some of these ritual rites and so on, you know, like uh, Padayani and uh, Tayyam and all that. These, they, they were, it was, it were actually the upper class who had, you know, joined the, the, the who, who, who imbibed the British sentiments and joined uh, the, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And they said, oh, and in, for example, in Wycombe, that was where the first place where, uh, you know, of course, these uh, people who were denied entry to certain streets, they, that is all they wanted. They wanted to walk the streets. They did not want to go to a temple because that was somebody else's worship place. They were not interested. But, and one guy, I still, I still remember, I mean, I've seen the photographs that one guy was bodily carried inside because he, he refused to go in, in, in the temple, but he was, but with that entry, whatever they had, whatever their ancestors had, all their cultural, uh, you know, assets were gone in the flesh. So all these people, bereft of their own cultural assets, they became Marxists. That is what you happens, you see in Kerala. And many, of course, converted as well. Uh, I have two questions. Yes. One is that uh, uh, Abrahamics, whatever you may say, are, are actually doing a lot of comparative religion. 
what do you think accounts for the relative absence of this kind of discipline in pagan societies a systematic discipline in pagan societies especially among hindus and secondly can there be a uniquely hindu approach to uh, you know this the discipline of comparative religion these are my two questions thank you uh, this um, comparative because the abrahamic religions actually they thrive on this comparative because without demeaning or you know down you how you say that um, you know without um, uh, you know putting down one religion they don't have they cannot be in a better state they always they are they are complete um uh what you call dynamics is to project as if they are in the forefront they are always they are very competitive in the sense without being without asserting themselves as the we are on the upper upper level we are not uh, you know or if we all say all all religions are equal then we are more than equal so with that that is what motivates them to be to, to this discipline and all that that is why they carry it wherever they go and there is another thing which i must say because it comes from competitive competition this competitive spirit which the pagan societies don't have and this i mean it is very difficult to find out how it is how it is a trait which you find uh, you probably must have heard in this called asura panchakam asura dharma panchakam these these are the five dharmas of asuras and one of them is competition because asuras always have competition and this is an asura trait this competition and without that they cannot sustain themselves they, i mean it is their uh, innate dharma you know? so it comes out so that is the reason and that is the same reason that you know this pagan and especially hindus don't have that competition they i mean of course it started because they started to imitate their others in order to you know just for survival you know uh, that that is the reason why you you hear about you know the hindus have also as asserting physically with violence with aggression and uh, that is just a reaction a response but uh, they are not uh, we, you know you know of course you can say that uh, these azura traits are there in many many societies uh, but it is not a spiritual trait of the hindus my second question was is there a uniquely hindu approach to comparative religion i mean uh, it, it is uh, actually due to the first reason that uh, hindus don't have this competition you know they don't have to assert that ours is this because even in the vedas you see there is this element of skepticism in everything because whatever we say it is uh, not with the, you, know, you know there is absolute uh, thing is never there even the rishis never asserted like that you know that uh, you you have to it is this and it is that because there is always an element of doubt it is our experience which is so that is the reason there is no discipline of course just like i said you know because uh, hindus have also started doing it but it is not a, as a, and maybe in, in due time uh, it will happen Uh, it has to happen because uh, you know the truth has to prevail so uh, this has to come 
that is uh, what I think, but uh, as it is, you don't find it because it was not necessary so far. I suppose uh, I'll make myself clear. Uh, this is a question about Kerala. I mean, it's about uh, Kerala. So, yeah. given that Kerala Christianity has made a lot of progress in Kerala in terms of numbers. Yes. Uh, historically, how much anti-Semitism has there been among Keralites? And uh, currently, is it increasing with increasing number of uh, uh, conversions or, uh, you know, does anti-Semitism not figure in Indian Christianity? What happens there? Anti-Semitism is... Oh, sorry, again, uh, my uh, thing, I mean, my audio went to mute. Um, by anti-Semitism, um, what exactly do you mean? I mean, you mean this animosity against the Jews? Is that correct? Yes, precisely. I mean, a doctrinal animosity and maybe social animosity against the Jews, the kind you saw in Europe. Yeah, that, that was not here because there is a, a, a reason for that. Because the first Christians to come here, they were all uh, converts from, uh, from uh, I mean, they were Hebrews who were converted. The, they were Jews, basically. And uh, many of the Christian, I mean, um, things, you know, they, they were following the Jewish things here. And all, even the later converts uh, followed that, the, what was it happened before? So there were never any conflict between the Jews and Christians here. Even with the Muslims, it was not there earlier. But now there is, even of course, in recent years, some things have come, but not before. Because there was a very vibrant Jewish community in Cochin and in Kerala, in other places as well. But uh, there had never been any problem between Christians, especially, and the Jews. And even with the Muslims, there had not been any problem, there had not been any conflict. I think one reason is that, you know, because there were all similar communities in, in, um, in a Hindu majority place. So that might have been one reason, because they could all integrate as one jati, you know, Jews were one jati and Christians were one and so on. 